This podcast is brought to you by nbs.fm, the no bullshit podcast network. Today, we have an interview with Adam Callow and Rachel Haley, co-founder and CEO at Claris Designs. Rachel Haley has worked in the finance and tech industry for the past 10 years. She started her career at Hall Capital Partners in the Portfolio Management Group, focusing on portfolio management, market analysis, and financial modeling. After Hall Capital, Rachel moved to Salesforce to work in the finance and strategy department. In 2015, she co-founded Claris Designs, which now has over 100 employees globally. And most recently, Rachel has worked as the Senior Director of Sales Operations and Strategy at Snowflake where she helped the company grow from 300 people to over 2,000 and more than 10xing in annual revenue. Rachel's core focus is flawless execution. In her own words, she'd rather have a suboptimal strategy with flawless execution as opposed to a constant shifting strategy to fit a particular box. I really enjoyed today's interview and I know you will too. So now let's get into it with Adam Callow and Rachel Haley, co-founder and CEO at Claris Designs. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Diary. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. How are you doing? I'm really good, thank you. Yeah, it's been a, internally for us from core business stuff, which a lot of the members or listeners of the show know about. Uh, we've got some new big changes in our business at the moment, which I'm quite excited by. Things are going well. We're sort of on a bit of a bounce back right now, but this this episode is not about expert trades. It's it's about you, Rachel. So out of curiosity, before we get into it, where I'm always curious, where are you joining us from in the world today? Where are you based? Sure. So normally I'm based in San Francisco, California. That's the headquarters of Claris Designs. However, today I am fortunate enough that I'm visiting my family in the Lake Tahoe area. So that's where I am. Really lucky to be around here. Beautiful. Nice stuff. Um, you mentioned Claris Designs, which is where I want to end this conversation on and talk about that. But I'm I'm really interested in taking it back to I guess your um, your early days of entrepreneurship because when we when we jumped on the mics before we hit record uh, you said something that piqued my interest which was you wish you'd started six months earlier and there was regret um, so could you take us all the way back to how you got into the world of entrepreneurship startups uh, and why you have that regret? Absolutely. So I started my career uh, right after I graduated college in finance. I worked for an asset management boutique firm in San Francisco. And one of the things I realized when I was working there was that the value that was derived in these investors' portfolios was driven primarily by these small startups that were a rinky-dink shop of five people that could grow to you know, multi-billion dollar revenue companies over the course of five or 10 years and have a successful exit. And that's really where everyone got their large returns from. And for me, it felt like that was where all the action was. And that's when I knew that entrepreneurship was something that I, I wanted to pursue. However, at the time, I didn't really have any skills. So I would interview at venture capital firms, which for finance trajectory, that was the next common steps. Instead of actually interviewing to be an associate, I would pitch them on random startup ideas that I had. So it was a little bit of a Trojan horse type of exploration and situation where I would come in, they thought I was interviewing as an associate, but really I would pitch them on my idea. And the thing that they always said to me was like, this is pretty entertaining, very creative. However, you don't really have any skills for someone that we would invest in. You have a good idea, but you've never worked in operations and you don't know how to actually build a product on your own. You're not a technical founder and you're a single founder. 
So really you should get all of that experience and then maybe come back to us and we'll consider funding your idea. So that's what I did. I worked at a company called Salesforce and worked in their finance and operations department. Got to see how a company operated at a 30,000 foot view from a operations perspective, profit and loss. See how things kind of flowed. And then during my time there, I started to learn how to program and build applications on the force.com platform. And it was during that time that I realized how important sales operations and operations in general were to the success of a company. So I would program during the day and then, you know, sort of at night when, when I could. And then I would also start answering questions for people in my network. So random different types of questions would come up um, of people who just left Salesforce and were at startups and they're saying, man, have you ever had to automatically do this? Or have you ever had to think about doing this? And I said, well, actually, yeah, I just, I just learned how to do this in the automation course that I've been taking on how to streamline your CRM. And so I, I really started just answering these questions ad hoc within my network in my free time and did that for a really long time. I think I did that for almost a year. And it got to the point at the very end of 2015 when we finally started Claris Designs that you know these questions were building up to the point where I really couldn't spend as much time doing my full-time job as I wanted to or should and was answering all these questions after hours. And I think, you know, if I had started maybe six months before in February, 2015, I may not have had as many inquiries or potential clients that I could bring revenue in from, but I definitely would have had more mental clarity and time to really think thoughtfully about how to scale the business and how I wanted to actually design our team and how we wanted to scale because what ended up happening is I quit in August 2015 and then was immediately thrown into reactive mode and I had all of these clients who had different questions and really not enough time to service them to the extent that I would have wanted and I think the kiss of death is not necessarily failure it's too much success too quickly because if you can't perform your job very well then you have you develop a bad reputation. And then that's the hardest thing, if not impossible to come back from. So it was a lot of really late hours and a lot of time spent trying to service all of those customers that I had to the level that I think they needed, as well as figure out how to build a business and how to run that because obviously I had never done that before. So I think if I had done it six months earlier, I really believe that I would have been in a much better position to help those customers. And we probably would be, you know, maybe even a little bit bigger than we are today. There's a, there's a whole world of things I want to try and unpack there. And I guess very selfishly for me, because I'm um, at, at my heart, I'm a, I'm a sales guy. Um, and <laughs> yeah. uh, Salesforce as uh, an engine from a platform, uh, as well as um, the, I guess, the operational um what's what, what i'm trying to get here the the way that salesforce operates has always been intriguing to me and how it got to the scale it did um what were your key takeaways from within that organization i would i would love to just get an understanding of when you mentioned the importance of sales and operational um diligence or success for a business what do you mean by that i mean that the Best strategy is useless if you don't have the execution to actually carry it 
carry out on that idea. So it, when Salesforce wanted to grow revenue and grow the top line by X percent, they were a machine in terms of hiring, recruiting, and retaining top talent from an account executive perspective. So they had such a process down of, okay, if we want to grow revenue by 10%, that means we're going to have to hire a thousand AEs by January of this year. And then, you know, a hundred per quarter thereafter. And that timing was flawless. They were able, the recruiting engine was just insane. And the training engine was fantastically flawless. So they would be able to find these people, bring them on board, train them and get them productive within a very short amount of time. And that's how, how really did they powerful. do that out of curiosity? I mean, I think that's the thing that I'm personally struggling with within our businesses. The the onboarding of uh, new, whether it's actually to the point that it might be new clients as well as how do you get that process nailed down? What did you see inside that company that you thought this is impressive? I'm trying to understand some key takeaways for me in terms of how do you get to the point where you can onboard someone fast to get them successful in a business um, and reduce that sort of time to value from an employee perspective, especially when it's someone like an account exec. Sure. I think it was, I mean, they basically treated their onboarding program like a university class. I mean, everything was documented, 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 Mm -hmm. lecture type onboarding process. So when on the first day, someone who was joining the company, not only did they know exactly what they were going to be learning that day, they were sent almost like a syllabus two weeks in advance of like, here are the things you should start to research. Here are all the YouTube videos. Watch this. Understand this. Come prepared to talk about the pitch of Salesforce. And there's just so much content out there. And obviously they didn't build that overnight. They have an army of people, but the way that they think about training is very similar to formalized education. It's very organized, very well documented. There are tons of resources. They have quizzes. So that formalized structure and how long it took them to get them there, I'm not actually sure. I'm sure it was several years and it didn't just crop up overnight, but that level of documentation and organization really created such a repeatable process that was able to grow at scale. In your experience, at what point does a company need to start thinking about that as in um, giving up resource within your organization to document ready for scale um, compared to actually just getting the work done so you keep the business alive and give yourself an opportunity to scale? Like, What's that balance look like in your opinion? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think there's any really specific right answer because in my my perspective, it's never too early to put that process in place. In fact, there are some companies that I've worked with where they've actually, they actually hired sales operations and a training team before they even hired salespeople. So it really, it really just depends on the revenue model. But I would say depending on how quickly you need to grow and what those growth expectations are, like if you're trying to triple your revenue every year, the sooner you hire all of the infrastructure and supporting personnel to really make that happen, the better. I don't think you can do that soon enough. If your growth is a little bit more moderate and you're doubling or just growing by maybe you know, anywhere from like 50 to 80% every year, you can probably just keep with your current status quo and scale as you're going. But if the, if the goal is to really push yourself each year and you're tripling or doubling, I would hire those people as soon as possible. And I don't think you can do it soon enough. Yeah. Something that I'm well, uh, historically, and I guess still do is struggle with, which is, um, 
it, it feels difficult to slow down, but I keep telling myself this mantra, which is like slow down to speed up, like build the process that will allow you to go faster later. But for me and people within the network, uh, the, the listeners of the show, I just know the pain points that they're hearing right now, which is I know I need to build the documentation very similar to our CTO actually. Like I try and press him to build a product and write code. And he tries to press back at me and say, we need to document the code so we can make onboarding easier in the future. And it's that constant challenge, but it feels like from, from your experience, it's uh, depending on how aggressive you want to be, uh, spend the time, build the process and then onboard fast and aggressively. Um, Yeah, I think, and I'm biased, of course. I think there are probably instances where that isn't necessarily helpful and you just need to ship code and and sell your product um, and get some revenue in the door. But what I've noticed with companies, if if they're constantly in that mode and they're not really laying the foundation, then what happens is they'll maybe grow to a million or two million in revenue, but then their day-to-day becomes so reactive and they're gaining a lot of yards to give a football analogy, but they're not really scoring any points. And it's because they're having to react to all of these suboptimal processes that were never really solidified in the beginning. And so it's, it is that balance. It's just so where and when do you want to spend your time doing that? Yeah, that's, that sort of nailed it for me, to be honest, like that, that revenue uh, spot is where we're at as a company. Um, and it's, it's, it's extremely difficult for us because we haven't built a process of even down to the products that we sell. We're going through a, an exercise right now of kind of trying to move from a 80% we'll do whatever you need agency model to a 80% productized service because it's really hard to scale up the very custom retainer work that we're doing at the moment. Um, but anyway, less about me. I guess there's one part of uh, your trajectory that I, I saw that I wanted to just dig into um, and just to understand how the overlap happened which was the you founded claris designs and at the same time you were doing some work at snowflake computing could you just explain what snowflake was and um where where that is sure absolutely so we started claris designs like i mentioned at the end of 2015 and then i worked there running the business for about two years Um, and then i realized during my time running the business that i was doing a lot of educating and consulting on how to scale a business at rapid growth, yet had never actually experienced that myself at a tech company. So it felt a little bit bizarre and odd at some point where I was talking about these ideas in a theoretical sense, but had never actually had to put pen to paper and live that. Uh, So my goal was to always you know, put the business on pause or let my co-founders run it. And I would step away while I could get hands-on, fast-paced, high-growth tech experience. So in October 2017, I was fortunate enough to take a role as the director of sales operations at a company called Snowflake. Uh, And Snowflake Now, they were formerly Snowflake Computing, uh, experienced rapid growth there. So I started and the company was around 330 employees globally with 30 core AEs. And then when I left in March of 2020, over 2,000 people globally and 450 core AEs. So the sales ops team grew from three people to 40 people during that time. I grew my team up to 22 at one point in time. And it was a fantastic learning experience. So that I really attribute now to the success that I'm able to really see with Claris is my experience at, at Snowflake taught me so much. 
let me dig into the experience and specifically uh, common common mistakes. Like you've obviously been exposed to a lot of sales execs. What do you think are the biggest mistakes that you see sales execs make today? Out of curiosity. So, and then this is again a biased perspective, I will admit. Um, but this current CRO of Snowflake, Chris Degnan, he and I would talk all the time about how he wishes he would have invested more resources and money into sales operations earlier on within the business. So going back to our other conversation, you know, what is that balance? I think from his perspective, you know, sales operations in his experience had been more of an administrative function. But then once the company was growing, he really started to see that as more of a strategic partnership and leveraging data to really give him insights to run his business. And we really got off to hiring and building up that team a little bit too late. And we were able to figure it out and really make the most of it. But if we could do it over again, he and I talk about he would have be, wished he gave more resources, so senior, more senior level headcount to the team as well as started that hiring process earlier. So I think sometimes sales executives, especially at the C-level, are resistant to hire more of those operational arms because it's a trade-off between a quota-carrying AE versus an administrative type role. But really that support function, if structured correctly, can provide the processes, the infrastructure, and the data to help you run your business more efficiently and then hopefully optimize the productivity of your AE. So hopefully you actually don't need as many. Um, but that, again, a biased perspective, but I see that happen fairly frequently. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put my, 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 myself in the shoes of the listener right now who are, our listeners are specific, predominantly um, smaller startups, probably one to 10, and maybe don't even have a sales force right now, but listen to this. I'm thinking, actually, I'm at a point in, in our trajectory as a company that we're interested in making our first sales exec hire. What experience do you have of getting that engine started within a business in terms of, let's just say, uh, me as CEO, I class myself as a sales um, professional at heart. What advice would you give me to making my first hire? As in, uh, process hire one mentor, build build that process out with one person. Do you hire multiple people because of the competitive nature of salespeople to run them against each other? How would you deploy um, some consultation into a small business making their first sales exec hires? Sure, I think when you're at that stage. And depending on how quickly you see your company growing, I would definitely hire someone. I would hire one person to start and someone who has experience selling and some leadership experience and can really grow with the role. So from my perspective, I think it's better to hire someone who has a little bit more experience under his or her belt versus a very junior person. And then that person can really grow the team and grow with the organization you don't want someone who isn't willing to roll up their sleeves and get dirty because the first sales hire that you're making, this person is going to have to pound the phones and send out dozens of emails, right? They're effectively like an SDR. So the goal is to just establish your sales pitch, how you're presenting your product, what is your sales methodology? Are you selling a platform? Are you selling a specific solution? Who's your target market? Who's your you know, ideal customer profile, what person are you talking to, all the elements of the sale, have this person 
be able to map all of that out and then just get as many meetings as you can. It becomes a volume play in the beginning. But I would hire someone who has a little bit more experience, not afraid to roll up their sleeves and get dirty and do some work and who can also grow the team. So you have that leader in place and then he or she can hire on individual contributors as the company scales. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I think probably the mistake that most of us make early on when we're making our first hires is, um, especially with my my profile, is I like sales. I would hire someone junior to train them up, but we, we did that. And we actually ended up letting that person go because uh, for a number of different reasons, but also it didn't give us any growth in the company. We ended up having me running a, a small sales team, which, which doesn't scale. And we flipped that on its head recently and hired a, a senior person last week who is now rolling up their sleeves doing all the process himself and being willing to go to war on the phones and emails and meetings, build the process out and then deploy that with confidence internally. I guess one of the things that um, I, I, I did struggle with and I think a lot of the people with small businesses do is when you're the founder, um, there's like this thing called like founder's magic where I can go into a meeting and I can probably close things without the slick process and the, the, the structure that, uh, we would need in order to scale that. How how do you see that transition period going? And when you when you hire a sales professional into the business and they say, here's what the market's saying, but the, the CEO is saying, no, no, but we haven't had to do that before. We don't need to build all these features and widgets. I was able to sell. There's, there's a conflict that can happen. Do you see that? Or is that something that was unique to us? And if so, how do you recommend people overcome that uh, in order to get the, the business to a point that can scale where it doesn't require the founder to be going in and, and selling just because they see the vision and sell on that? I guess, does that make sense? Do you kind of see where I'm coming from? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very common problem. I, I think at Snowflake, even to some extent, that was an issue in the very early days because Bob Mulia is such a visionary from a product perspective. Uh, but Chris Degnan, who'd been there from the very beginning, is one of the best sales executives I've ever been able to meet. And he absolutely knows how to sell software, hands down. So I think the idea is that, yeah, you know, if you are a C level executive or you're the founder, unless your background is in sales, which it could be, right? Like Mark Benioff came from selling at Oracle. I would say the person that you hire, as we just discussed, should be on the more experienced side, hopefully knows more than you do about how to actually take your product to market and sell to customers, not only sell to them, but get the feedback necessary to relate to the product team in a way that's tangible for them to actually map out the roadmap. You know, the sales team is a good filter and hopefully they can aggregate all the feedback they're getting from customers and distill it down into the most prominent features that would be needed over what period of time. And then it's up to product or the CEO to actually map that out and see what's feasible. And I, I often see that struggle between the co-founder and the CEO and then the sales professional because the CEO probably built the product. It was his or her idea. It's like their child almost. And letting go of that control is really hard, especially if you've proven some success in the past by doing it yourself. But just because you've proven success doing it yourself doesn't mean that there isn't another way that is equally, if not more successful, as well as most likely more scalable. Because you have to think to yourself as a founder, do you really want to be spending your time in five years or 10 years 
in sales meetings? Probably not. You probably want to be spending your time thinking about the roadmap of the company and how it's going to grow and the vision of the product and what that looks like. And then you're brought into very strategic sales if you're needed. But ideally, you would want to outsource that and give it to someone who is an expert. So you have to really think long term and it is hard, but give up that control and really hire someone that you can trust and just have confidence in the fact that what expertise they're bringing to the table will be valuable and, and should be thoroughly explored. Uh, I think that that last three minute segment that you just spoke is probably one of the best piece of uh, sales advice. I think everyone needs to hear uh, because it's so easy, especially for someone that is um, a salesman at heart and CEO, giving that control up is so painful, but I'm in that exact position now where I don't want to be in those sales meetings. I want to be a CEO, but I'm in this constant conflict day to day in the process of working through it. Hence one of the reasons I was really excited to get on a call with you. Um, and the way you explained it, I thought was interesting as well. I wrote down the word translator, um, where it's it's not just about closing business, it's about translating the market feedback back into product so that we create this constant feedback loop, which is, um, I thought it was a great way that you explained it for, for people to just make sure they take note of. You mentioned a, a word there, which I've, is sort of on my mind at the moment in terms of outsourcing. Um, I guess there's a bit of context, um, uh, elephant in the room, COVID uh, has changed how mm. everyone's doing business right now. And we were a team that were office-based, shoulder to shoulder, getting work done. And within 48 hours, we became a remote team, um, which was, I guess, really difficult for me because I enjoy having the team around me and I'm no experience managing remote people. And it's, I guess I've had a huge education piece of just how efficient the team can be. Um, by working from home, saving on travel, saving on time, Zoom meetings, Zoom pitches. I used to spend two and a half days a week in a car traveling around to do meetings and all that's gone. And it's also sort of opened my eyes up to, actually we can work remote and potentially some of the stuff we are hiring for, we could outsource. And I know this is something that you've got a, a wealth of experience in. How do you see the, the landscape looking in the next sort of 12 to 24 months from um, I guess, a sales operation and outsourcing perspective. Could you just, I, and I guess for a bit of context, it might help if you just share um, uh, where your business is in terms of a Claris design scale and where they're based and how you see the landscape shifting as, as we come out the other side of what's going on in the world. Sure. So Claris Designs is around 100 employees globally. We have around 70 employees based in the Philippines. One of our primary revenue streams is, you know, it's sales ops as a service. And we have an outsourced team, which take on a lot of the more administrative tactical type items that sales people, so account executives, sales engineers, or SDRs have to do day to day. So they spend less time doing administrative to clerical type work and more time on the phone speaking with prospects, whether it be in person in the past or now primarily over Zoom. So, so they can really spend more of their time on those high value type activities. So, so that's Claris and we've been continuing to scale that over the last six months. And then in terms of how I see the, the, com the, the landscape really changing in, in sales ops in general over the next year or two, I think you know, not only will companies continue to outsource 
more tactical administrative type functions within their sales team, I see that expanding for all of operations. So I would say there are a lot of things that the product team or even the engineering team sometimes have to do that are more tactical that you could handle offshores and that's much more cost effective. And then from an operations perspective, I think if you can outsource areas where you don't necessarily need a full-time hire given the size of your company or the demands of the business, it makes sense to hire a consulting agency like Claris Designs or someone else to really just augment a small piece of labor that you need. And because everyone is more accustomed, just as you mentioned, to working remote, and now we're more familiar with it and it's more of the norm, I think it'll allow these uh, outsource type of resources and consulting augmentation to be easier, more easily embedded within a company's normal day-to-day operations than it was before. It used to be if you were hiring a consultant, it was this, it was a bigger deal. You had to meet with all the executives, really had to get buy-in from everybody. Whereas now, because everything is so remote and, you know, there's this easier perspective of, of, of working globally. I think, you know, consultant just sort of plugs right into the model. And I want, I think people are going to continue to figure out, wow, what other ways can we reduce and streamline and optimize? Like this doesn't need to be handled by someone in house. We can offshore that. So I think that's the way that things are trending. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I guess one of the things that kind of pops up for us and I, uh, some of my, my friends who are founders is they want to take the leap to start outsourcing things, but I guess the truth is we're scared to it for a number of different reasons, which is one, uh, quality control. Two, uh, how do I safely open up the back end of my app to to get someone, a contractor to work on this and they don't steal my code? Um, and from one extreme to another, we all make our own excuses up in our head. Um, what's the What advice have you got for people that are interested in outsourcing of how to do that, uh, I guess, to put our toe in the water to, I guess, to test the efficiencies that we can get within the business? I would think, I mean, I can understand that there's, you know, security risks and it sounds to me a little bit more like a a hesitation on giving up control again. I think when you're a small business, it's nice because you can manage every tiny little process and piece of the puzzle, but that doesn't scale. So I would start with something really small and low hanging fruit. Like, you know, if this were to be completely botched, is it the worst thing in the world to just get dip your toe in the water? Like, is there some manual process that someone on our team does, but it has to be done and it can't be on automated for the time being that we could try engaging an outsourcing company with at the moment and just see how it goes and give it like a six month trial run. And you'll learn a lot from that process regardless of if it completely blows up and is horrible, you'll learn why and what to do differently. And I'll maybe give you some ideas of what you can automate or improve within your own internal systems, or it'll go really well. And then you have one less thing that you have to do internally that takes up your team's time. Yeah, I love that. Start with something that what's the worst that can happen mentality. And like right. to, if it goes well, start doubling down because you'll probably start to feel the benefits of it. I've got I've got one thing on my notepad which I've I've got no great segue into to be honest Rachel because I'm not entirely sure what it means but I've been told to ask you what is your prioritization framework as in how do you get everything done uh, so I'd love to just throw that in there as a question because I'm I guess I'm just a bit curious Yeah absolutely um the prioritization framework that I operate within is trying to put everything into buckets. And I ask myself a series of questions. So the, que- the some of the top questions that I ask are, 
will this reduce future work? So that's like one of the top questions that I try to ask myself in every time I'm trying to prioritize. Is doing this thing today going to reduce the time I have to spend on it tomorrow? So that's the one thing you can't get back is your time. So if you're building something now that saves you 20 hours a week in the future, that should actually absolutely be prioritized. And the second piece or second question that I ask is, is this revenue generating focus? Like will focusing on this problem directly help with generating more revenue? And then the third one is, will focusing on this problem directly help with saving costs? So it's sort of like time first and then money second. And those are the top three questions that I use to really prioritize my day. And then throughout the day, I try to really think about what's tactical and not very important, even though it seems like it's urgent, and to remove that from my plate entirely and really only focus on the high-level important problems that are going to really help with the company as it scales down the line. I've got to ask it something that I'm going through at the moment is when when you identify fires in the business, how do you have the self-control to, I guess, let some fires burn within the business? Because what I just took away from that is there'll be stuff that hits your plate, hits your inbox, someone calls you, and then you have to you sense check this thing is is this creating leverage? Is this making money? Is this saving money? I love those three questions to ask yourself as like a quick sense check. And you might say, no, it doesn't do any of these things. But emotionally, uh, especially if, again coming back to the size company we are we're a small business everything feels personal everything again I think uh, we nearly slipped into a therapy session just because it's like Adam you've got a problem with giving up control which is what you keep coming back to uh, which is important <laughs> in order to get to scale um, how do you let fires burn in the business or do you not you just have a team around you to delegate it to Great question. No, I let the fires burn. Absolutely. I, I think I just failed at this so many times because I used to be uh, a leader who had to control everything, right? And I really struggled with that. And I would micromanage every little process. And as soon as the fire came up, I would be the one emailing and pinging and slacking and texting and calling. And is this happening or can I get involved? And I just realized that the business wasn't growing and I wasn't using my mental capability for things that really mattered. And I would look, but reflect back on the last week or month and think, wow, okay, I saved maybe a lot of fires, but we learned nothing about how to improve the business. My employees are less enabled and less empowered and I feel exhausted. And I didn't really spend my time thinking about how to propel the business forward. I just spent time trying to put out fires and were they really that urgent? Probably not. Most of the time, these very urgent items or tasks that come up, they seem like fires and it's so reactionary and innate in our being to just go to what that problem is and assume that it's the worst thing in the world, especially if the company you're starting is your personal idea. But it most of the time it really isn't it really isn't even if you have a really 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 frustrated customer which i think most people would in the audience think about right now if you have someone on your sales team or on your customer success team or someone who's managing the revenue arm let that person handle it because they're either going to do really well right kind of like with the outsourcing example it's either going to go really well and they're going to learn and then that person is going to be more equipped to solve problems like that in the future or it's going to go terribly and then you're going to have to learn from that. But either way, the business wins. You're, you're learning and you're growing and you're developing more skills. Because if your team isn't enabled around you, then the business falls apart. 
So it's actually strategic to really remove yourself from those fires and see where things break and think more holistically about how do we remove ourselves or how do we prevent this from happening ever again? Like I never want this to even come across my plate or I don't even want this to be an issue that the business deals with. What did this fire teach us? And if you can spend your time thinking about that, I think that's worthwhile because you're saving time. You're saving your employees time or even potentially your time. Um, but yeah, it is, it is really hard. I just failed at it so many times. It got to the point where I was like, we're really not growing. Like I have to try something else. And so I'll just turn off my phone. I'll turn off my email and I'll be in a creative zone thinking about the product or our overall operations as a whole. And if something happens, it just happens and we just deal with it and we learn from it. You know, you can always repair and, and get better. At least that's my perspective. Uh, this is like an extremely well-timed interview from my side because this is that was exactly selfishly what I needed to hear. So I I, I really <laughs> appreciate that last four minutes because it's what I'm personally struggling with. But I'm committed to getting over that hump uh, right now because we're at this plateauing stage, uh, and every fire I'm the fireman in the business, not the CEO. So I'm trying to I'm trying to change that. Um, Rachel, I could I could sit here and chat to you for hours uh, to be honest because of uh, your experience and. Um, where I'm trying to take the business and you're clearly a fantastic leader. Um, so if people uh, are interested in learning more about you or Claris Designs, let's just use the next minute to just, I guess, deeply understand what Claris Designs does. Uh, and if someone's listening to this, uh, if they're a fit or a potential customer, uh, let's give it the pitch and then work out where people can speak to you. Absolutely. So Claris Designs is a sales ops as a service consulting business. So we really specialize in helping small to medium sized companies grow and scale their sales and marketing operations. So we do that in a couple ways. One is we have a consulting agency that will actually sit down with your executive team and do a deep dive into your business to figure out what's working well and what's not to really provide a good strategic framework on how you can solve some of these problems and scale. And the second arm that we have is an outsourcing team, which will help offload a lot of the manual processes that your team doesn't necessarily need to do day to day. So if you wanna learn more about how to scale your business and you want some consulting help to really augment or provide strategic expertise on how to get this done, you can go to www.clarisdesigns.com and go to our contact us page and someone will get back to you within 24 hours. Absolutely love that. And then last bit of context, what size companies do you really start at? Just so I know uh, the person listening to this goes, this sounds really great, but I'm probably too small as a business. Where do you start helping companies? We have company of, of all size. We have companies that have $0 in revenue and just three employees or two employees all the way up to, you know, 3000 person companies with over a hundred million in, in revenue. So we've really been able to structure our, our advice to, to any type of company that has high fast paced growth goals. Absolutely. Love that. Guys, hopefully you've enjoyed this interview as much as I have. Uh, and as you heard it, if you're in a, in a very similar position to me right now, where you're looking to get to scale um, and get yourself out of the way, um, I'm enjoying this conversation. And to be honest, Rachel, people know I don't BS on this podcast. I'm going to follow up on this because we've just hired our new commercial director of the business. And I think right now is the time we're trying to build the process and get to some scale. So I'm going to be following up and I hope some of the listeners do too. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 